Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning broadcast. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. Yeah, I'm surprised you even remember us at this point. <laughs> and who is this? No, I <laughs> <laughs> very good. Uh, well, your initial thoughts as we uh, took the opportunity this week to remember the 23,447 who perished in war and terror attacks over the last 68 years and then uh, quickly um, switched gears, began and enjoyed a wonderful 68th birthday celebration for the State of Israel on what was really 68 years ago today on the 5th of ER because of what we explained yesterday. We observed it yesterday on Israel Independence Day. Your thoughts as these two days took place this week? Well, I find them both very moving and, and regret that more people don't mark these anniversaries, especially here in the United States. In Israel, virtually everybody does. Uh, and the the sacrifice that was made, that 25,000 Jews, almost exclusively Jews, young and old, who gave their lives for what we take for granted, meaning having a Jewish state, having Yerushalayim, having what past generations did not have, certainly recognizing the miracles that have happened over these years, the miracle of 1948, and seeing some of the analyses and reviews of that period, you see how much greater the miracle was that it actually happened. And you know that even the United States was under, the president was under great pressure to rescind his the confirmation and to hold off. And the um, uh, fact that the, the they squeaked through the vote on the U, in the UN, yeah. uh, Every every step of this, and then of course the the war that followed, and and you know we we spend a lot of time when we're angry about BDS, but we also have to remember to celebrate. And they say the hardest commandment to fill is simcha, is remembering to to celebrate, and the you know to to take the time out to even take part of the day yesterday to talk to the kids about it to teach about it. How many shuls really had events? How many had a memorial service? And, you know, last week I was in, in Auschwitz and Birkenau for the March of the Living, but also the day before was a seminar marking the 80th anniversary of the Nuremberg Laws and the 70th anniversary of the Nuremberg Trials. So in one event you went from hate to justice. You, you, you saw the progression from the the depths to which they could go and then holding some, at least, to account. It doesn't undo it, and it wasn't really true justice uh, for the victims, but the uh, and seeing Supreme Court justices from around the world who came to this event and who participated, and the, going from out, going to Auschwitz, and seeing a sea of blue and white in that, in that killing field, in that blood-drenched soil, certainly reminds you the importance of Israel, significance of Israel. With, uh, with the regularity with which you travel to Eastern Europe and see the concentration camps, um, I mean, I'm sure it, it, it can't help but be you know, moving each and every time, but can you describe for us what it's like for somebody who is there on a more regular basis than others if you're able to keep that emotional level each time you visit? keep the emotional level, and in fact, it becomes more intense because you see new things each time. And I took two of my grandchildren, one from uh, Teaneck, one from uh, in Flatbush, and, and I 
relive it again through their eyes. And I know how little they know about it, and even though they're exposed to it. And they sat with a survivor. They were mesmerized. They sat for an hour and a half, two hours, just listening and, and trying to take in all they could. The, the, and each one reacts to the experience in a different way. And I, in part, you know, react to what they're seeing and seeing their reaction to it and finding the names, seeing the names of their great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents in the books in, in, in Auschwitz and the, um, the, the message it gets. It's, it's not because, uh, you know, I believe so strongly we should build tourism in, in Poland or to the camps. Well, I hope not, right? But, but I see that, that the message, and the message of the, of the memorial, Rabbi Lau comes each, each year, and uh, he's an amazing, it's amazing to see him do it, and, they, and uh, each year there's an, an additional theme. Uh, one year it was of the liberators, and we saw the people who liberated the camps, elderly men now, and being embraced by, by people who they liberated, guys who remembered them from 50, 60 years ago, 70 years ago. Wow. You you can't imagine, and each time the the experience is is overwhelming. I had the privilege to speak both at the Philharmonic Hall at the uh, so the the event um, on Erev the March and the at the seminar, um, and so the more I prepared, when I prepared the, the and read, you learn each time, and and we're only beginning to find out the facts. We don't know a lot about how vast this killing machine was how much collaboration, how much they knew around the world that didn't do anything about it. We continue to find, and, and, and I would say that we still only know a small part. We still see, you know, the restitution cases. We know how much has been stolen and, and not returned. We, and we see governments now enacting, you know, laws to return property, communal or personal property, when most of those uh, the, the victims, initial victims were killed, but even those who survived... Uh, have passed. Unbelievable. Uh, and on the other point, in terms of the uh, state of Israel and its 68th birthday, you mentioned, of course, the, the, the miraculous nature of the entire episode. But uh, obviously, and you alluded to this, we continue to live in this miracle right now. And we mentioned yesterday during our special that when you're living through it, you don't realize how miraculous it is. But if you would compare the last 68 years to most other eras in Jewish history, we are privileged beyond belief. Exactly. And you, you see the communities that, that thought that it would never happen to them and how, how they led, led, lived. It reminds you, I, I think I've quoted, but I think it was with Yaakov Kamenetsky, Tzatzal said about the Agada, behold, in every generation, we read, you know, enemies arise to destroy us. And he said, wasn't there one generation that didn't have it? He said, read the next paragraph, Teomad, where you see, tells the story of Lavan, Bikesh Lakor, as I call, that Paro only wanted to kill the firstborn. And here was Yaakov, our forefather Jacob, living with his father-in-law and thinking it wasn't pleasant. He had to work each time seven more years and et cetera. But he didn't realize that while on the surface it seemed calm, there was love and plotting the whole time. So he warns every generation, don't take it for granted. Don't believe it because you don't see it manifest in certain ways. And now we do see it manifest. We see so many communities here in America now facing anti-Semitic incidents and, and uh, board meetings, town meetings, where now people are, are free, free to be vocal in expressing anti-Semitism. That e- e- they may, there always are haters, but there are constraints on them. And when those constraints are removed, 
that's when we have trouble. No question about it. Malcolm Holmline with us. Weekly update here at JM in the AM. Move to the uh, news of the uh, day and of the week. Uh, David Samuels, big article in the New York Times Magazine this past Sunday, which has gotten a tremendous amount of attention. It focuses on uh, Ben Rhodes. Ben Rhodes is the Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications for the United States President Barack Obama, an advisor on the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, also known as the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. And in an, uh, I'm taking a random article. There have been a million articles about this article, as you know. Uh, I'm just reading from here, The Observer. In a shocking revelation, Rhodes admitted that his boss's narrative on his preeminent foreign policy accomplishment was a lie. According to the White House, the nuclear agreement with the Mullahs became possible in 2013 when quote-unquote moderates under Rouhani replaced hardliners in Tehran. Thus did parlay with the Islamic revolutionary regime finally become possible. And the road to the vaunted deal at last came into focus. None of that was actually true. The big push to seal the nuclear deal with Iran predated the rise of Rouhani. And from the outset, the White House viewed its sales job as at least as important as any diplomatic progress. What do you think... And what is your reaction to this sales job that is described in this very long article in Sunday's Times? Well, first of all, it's shocking that that, uh, somebody, while they're still in office, would uh, make such revelatory statements. And and they talk about the uh, media and talking about the media about how they they use them. uh, And individuals are named there also both by the author and by by the subject. And the, um, the depiction of the fact that, that they would go to any means and, and say anything in order to, to get a deal through. And the, you know what we have to think about, Nahum, also? It caused outrage here, and it's, it, it will have a long-term effect. We have to see how Congress will react to it. Our people are saying, you know, it's an impeachment, it's a base for impeachment, it's based for other things, none of that's going to happen. Think of how the foreign leaders look at us now. Mm. What do you think the people, the leaders in the Middle East, look at that article? And because they hate Iran and they feel that we have, we were too generous to Iran and we sold out to Iran even, think of what they say now. That they say, look, it was a deliberate plane. We warned you. We told you. And the the uh, message, and, and, and looking at some of the comments that when uh, Panetta can say, oh, yeah. um, you know, that when, at the time he argued and especially to Israelis and others, you know, that, that uh, the president would act and said, would you ask that now? He said, no, probably not. And, the, the, and, and, and this is while everybody's still in office. I only can in, uh, anticipate what is going to come out once they're out of office and all the books start getting written, uh, analyzing and telling the inside story about this, the manipulation that he describes uh, of the process. And I think the... the um, when we look at Iran's activities and with the promises about uh, moderation, etc., Wendy Sherman, who was the chief negotiator in a speech last month, uh, said Rouhani is no moderate. But that's not what she was saying for, for months and months. And they sold it to us and how that this would strengthen the hands of the moderates. And obviously, we, we have not found any moderates who, in, in positions of power. They can be uh, put on a better face. They might dress better. But they're not different on the bottom line. One of the keys to the whole operation was making sure that publicly someone or everyone felt that there were moderates to deal with in Iran, even though, by the way, i got to give you credit, of course, because you, I mean, you revealed this before anybody else, that anybody who really suspects that those are moderates are being silly. And now we see, based on the article at least, that 
the whether there were moderates there or not is completely irrelevant. This whole thing was hatched way before that, and the question was how to manipulate the media and the American people and, as you said, leaders around the world to go along with it. And, and, and look at what the events this week. You know, there's a, a, a Holocaust cartoon contest going on in Iran. And Zarif, the foreign minister, who wants to appear moderate, and if you remember, I, I described mm-hmm. him uh, when he got into office uh, from my personal interactions with him when he was the ambassador here, that he's a chameleon and very clever, very charming when he wants to be, in, but not to believe what you see on the surface about these guys. And he said, we have no, the government has no involvement. This is a guy who refused to condemn the Holocaust when he became foreign minister. But he said, we don't have any involvement. And the guy who's running it said, he's lying. <laughs> he's lying. What do you mean? Do you think we could do this without the government? Do you think we could have a contest and give, a, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in prizes and just to have the most horrific depictions of Jews and, and, and the victims of the Shoah? And, you know, and, and yet there's almost no response to it. There's no outrage to it. And the, we know that Iran, all the time, they, they, while we were off the air, there were at least two missile launches, uh, one of a space launch and one of a, 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 of a precursor for intercontinental continental ballistic missile. We see the, the uh, weapon shipments. Yesterday, Israel intercepted a shipment going to Hezbollah from, from Syria, hit a military convoy of weapons. Iran is not stopping in any way and moving around the world. And articles are coming out on something I've warned about for a long time, said that this would be the issue this year about Iran's involvement in South America. The recruitment, not just by Iran, even ISIS took 100 guys out of Trinidad and Tobago to, 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 to um, Syria. But they're recruiting people all the time, and others are recruiting for the war in Yemen. And they, the, the expansion of their activities in South America, in Colombia, and in Panama, and I met people from both countries, and, and all of a sudden now, those places that are supposedly our allies and closest, et cetera, et cetera, we find out that Iran, especially in Colombia, is, is deeply involved. So they're moving closer and closer, and of course, they're in Mexico. Unbelievable. The Ben Rhodes piece, by the way, um, sometimes I ask you to analyze you know, the media reaction to things. Uh, it, it seems that... The outrage that you'd expect at a level of outrage from the media is not there, even though there's some, of course, who are, you know... They're attacking the author. Correct, correct. the guy who wrote it now. Correct, correct. But, but keep in mind, <laughs> they're attacking the author, but also keep in mind that a good part of the article focuses on what Rhodes thinks of the media. You would, right. th- you would think after that level of insult, they'd react a little differently. You're absolutely right that, that they, they... And that's what I'm saying, that they didn't go after his charges about how, you know, I don't know if useful idiots would be the, the term that, that people would use in, in describing it, but, but the term about the blob, about the decision-makers, about Congress, about others. I mean, they attack everybody in, in that. And, and you wonder, what, what was he thinking? What was, the, what was accomplished? Why would he do this? There has to be a reason. You, can, you could say that somebody makes a statement, you know, and, and misstates something or says something that they regret. You can't give a 28-page interview and then say, this is something, you know, uh, well, I misspoke on that. Right. This has to be deliberate. Finally, what does this tell us about the president? I mean, again, we, you know, I think the country was relatively familiar with his agenda, in all fairness to him, before he was elected. So, you know, American people essentially got what they, you know, I, I don't think this was a this was a, this was a uh, a surprise to anybody that this, the president would pursue 
this type of agreement, uh, maybe not to the degree that he did in terms of having, you know, <laughs> feeling that he had no choice but to make it happen. But what, is this, what does this tell us? It tells us that he's consistent with his political views. It tells us that he's behaving the same way he did right after he took office and started all these um, uh, relationships with, uh, uh, you know, with different countries in the Middle East to accomplish certain things. Does it, does it tell us anything new about the president? I don't know that it tells you anything new. I mean, he did set the goals, as you said. Havana was one. He's done it. Uh, his trip now coming up in Japan, and, and uh, he, he will continue to work on the legacy issues, as they're called, you know, the things that, that he wants a record. Right. Uh, and as he told me, you know, most presidents have to worry about it for 10 or 20 years. He has to worry about it for 40 or 50 years because of his age. Right. Um, that uh, his name is on these things, and... and uh, you know, he'll want to see the move. I don't think he got out of the Iran uh, negotiations all that he wanted in terms of creating maybe an embassy and a press visit or some other things because Khomeini doesn't want it. And look at the aggressiveness of Iran since the deal. Look at the statements Khomeini made. He made the most virulent statement about the U.S. just in the last weeks, let alone continuing about Israel. And uh, the launch of the missile, you know, that had in Hebrew the death to Israel. But, but first, it's death to the United States. And it's now just accepted. It's, it's almost meaningless. And when there are no consequences for all of these violations, the countries in the region say, that's the story. That's the problem. The will has the West is irrelevant. They, they are in cahoots with them, and even worse. And this is, uh, is very troubling at a time when, you know, the eruptions continue and we see, you know, the more aggressiveness. You know, ISIS doesn't necessarily get reported all the time, but they're trying to create a little enclave up in northern Syria, a little caliphate. They are working to undermine Egypt, both from Libya, from Sinai, infiltration into the desert in Egypt. You know, things are happening all the time, and people are just not focused uh, on it. And in part, I know people don't like when I say it sometimes, that, that I think the obsession with the presidential candidates, I don't mean with the race, and the election is important, and who is nominated, but the, it, it blocks out coverage of many of the important issues, including <laughs> the congressional races, but right. more importantly, the issues. People don't talk about it. Ninety percent of the news is who may said what the latest and not the incredible number of developments that are taking place. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org, and of course on the NSN app. Malcolm Honline is with us, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. There are other statements that uh, I think have shaken our world a little bit over the last couple of weeks. Deputy Chief of, Gen- Deputy Chief of General Staff Major General Yair Golan in Israel compared Israeli society to the Nazis on Holocaust Remembrance Day last week on Yom HaShoah, your... Uh, impressions to uh, what he had to say regarding Israel today. Well, he he, he likened Israel to pre-Nazi Germany. Right. Uh, so he didn't say the Israelis were like Nazis, and or the government uh, was. Uh, it was very unfortunate. He, they, he backed off of it, apologized for it, whatever. Um, but this seems it, to be an epidemic in Israel. Oh, there's always the loose lips sink ships. Well, not just the loose lips, an epidemic to. To, to especially around Yom HaShoah, to have this introspective examination of I what... W- you could say self-flagellation. Exactly. 
And, and, and what, first of all, the timing is ridiculous as far as I'm concerned. I don't know what one has to do with the other, although others think just the opposite. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and to make a statement like that, uh, no, knowing our history, is, is quite outrageous. Absolutely. And again, it detracts from the real issues. It gives fodder to our enemies who, who then just pick up and say, look what he said. They don't know context. They don't know, you know, back off, but they, they don't have to. They just take his words and use them. Yeah, and also a um, a uh, an interview with Major General Mayor Dagan, retired director of the Mossad, uh, shortly before his death, he revealed that in 2010 he went behind the back of Prime Minister Netanyahu, informed CIA Director Leon Panetta that Netanyahu and Ehud Barak were about to order the security services to attack Iran's nuclear installations. Now, now, what is that? Is that is that insubordination? Is that uh, is that um, uh, something that someone can be, uh, you know, brought up on charges going around the back of the prime minister in order to inform the director of the CIA of what it, the plans are. Look, uh, he, he's dead, and it's hard to speak. I know him uh, well. Uh, I was very disappointed by what he did after he left office. He, he, he wanted an extension of term. He didn't get it. He'd also been ill you know, for uh, a good part of the time since he stepped out of office, uh, since he left office. Um, uh, you know, the, the, um, to say it's betrayal, to say it's certainly inappropriate. You know, the, the we have to know exactly what he did and didn't do. We don't know from the other side yet if all these reports are actually true or how far he went. But at the very least, for a head of security agency to to go behind the prime minister's back and reveal information. Not only does it undermine Israel's security interests and its negotiating position and and the relationship, um, it, it is certainly a, a contradiction to the responsibilities he bore. So, I mean, historians will will analyze it and we'll get some more of the facts. And but certainly, it's disturbing on the surface. Does this revelation uh, um, uh, reinforce the opinion that Israel was really close? to militarily taking out the Iran nuclear facilities, or this is no indication about how close they, they may have been? Well, it certainly says that, that, that there were the discussions. You know, some people might argue that he did this to serve Israel, that right. to get the Americans to be more open and forthcoming and to, to reach out to, in order to prevent it. And that's, you, you saw what Panetta said, that his job was to keep Israel from, from carrying out an attack and to reassure Israel and you know, they promised Israel. Well, they were ready to def- the, the U.S. was ready to defend the Iran nuclear uh, facilities, right? Well, there are some who say that too, uh, but they all, but they said that he said that at the time that they told him they assured him that if anything goes forward, that they would be there to attack, and not an assurance he would give any more today. So, um, you know, it's hard to know when you can't ask the guy the the bottom line questions about why what was the motivation to try to get. The United States to be more forthcoming, take leadership to, for them to do it, rather than leave it to Israel, because there was a lot of concern, if you remember, at the time, that Israel couldn't really do the full job, that without the support of the United States, without the uh, firepower of the United States being involved, it, it might be a very temporary setback, but and, and it could exacerbate the situation more than it would accomplish. Yeah. Well, for those who've been calling for Israel to take action, they may have been a lot closer than we originally thought. (laughs) (laughs) Satisfy all the people out there who think Israel's too quiet on this issue. Uh, Who's responsible for the uh, taking out, the death of Mustafa Amin Badreddin? 
Well, whoever it is, we certainly should be saluting them. Uh, I'm not sure that Israel did do it. He had so many enemies. This is a guy who was responsible for all of Hamas, uh, Hezbollah activities in Syria, but also for their worldwide operations. He was the guy who succeeded his cousin, um, you remember Imad Mugnia, who was assassinated, but he was considered even more dangerous, and he was uh, very unpopular within uh, Hezbollah. He was very hot-tempered, they said, and, and, and unstable, and uh, but very closely allied to Nasrallah, um, and uh, he was not considered rel- that religious, but he was uh, considered a, a playboy, and he he the, the hit as it was is uh, we've we've seen different versions of it. We'll learn a lot more, but he he goes back many decades, and he's been designated as a terrorist starting in 2012 by the Department of Treasury. He's also wanted for the International Tribunal that's been investigating the killing of the Prime Minister of um, of Lebanon, uh, Rafik Hariri and he's considered one of the prime suspects. So there were a lot of potential uh, enemies that would have uh, wanted to see him uh, eliminated. He was ta- he was uh, also, in, just in April, uh, the Treasury Department again put him under the uh, International Financing Prevention Act of last year, so he had primary, secondary sanctions against him and was a prime target for many people. So we don't know exactly who did it, when someone like him is eliminated, does it really shake up Hezbollah for a while? Oh, absolutely. This is a big loss for them. This is not a minor thing because they they have more and more trouble replacing the people at the top when uh, an event like this takes place. And the um, um, the the shakeup, especially because of his close relationship to uh, to Nasrallah right. and one of the people that Nasrallah relied on. Hey, what so, do you think? I'm sorry. Yes, it makes a difference. What do you think of Hillary's statement that uh, Hamas has no choice but to store their weapons in schools in Gaza because of the uh, density of the area? There's no other place to put them. Well, I don't think she was meant to excuse it, but it certainly comes off uh, sounding that way. And I, I, I've been trying to find out the exact context of the comment, um, but uh, we all know that uh, Hamas's record has been very clear how they use civilian. Uh, places for cover and et cetera. You know, uh, one of uh, a foreign leader I met with uh, recently uh, kept saying to me, "You don't understand about Hamas. He's a, he's a, has close relationship with them." And we were trying to get the you know the bodies of Hadar Golden and uh, the other who so MIA who who was being held still there. And he said, "When I raised about the tunnels, and he said, you don't understand. They don't have roads, so they have to build tunnels." Mm, <laughs> and sure. I said, "Well." What are you talking about? There's not roads within Gaza. It's not to transit tra- travel. These are, and then he said, no, they have tomatoes, and they have to get the tomatoes out, and the tomatoes become bombs, and they have no way to get them out. He said, Mr. President, you know, you could say that tunnels to Egypt may have been tunnels for trade at times because they smuggled stuff in and out. The tunnels to Israel are only tunnels of terror. And and uh, you hear the argument that people give it, and it almost appears to be a justification of the horrendous activities and, and terror that, that Hamas is, is engaged in and building up again. I think that, uh, you know, there are rumors, you know, is Hamas is preparing for. I don't believe that they want a war right now, uh, but they have rebuilt 
much of their capacity and the international pressure um, continues to to uh, uh, grow. But, you know, where are the condemnations? You know, they found two tunnels, <laughs> and they, they captured two guys who were responsible for building these tunnels, Israel captured, and they were able to, to get incredible information out of them. And this is... Uh, um, I think, you know, should be a, a clear statement to the world, and yet nobody cares. And when it comes to the excuses, there's always plenty for Israel's enemies. Look how the United Nations condemned while we were away again, we, and we have started circulating, and people can go to the conferenceofpresidents.org website, uh, uh, an international declaration against the United Nations, the bias, the discrimination. There's only the first step in a program, but, but to show broad support for it, both in the Jewish and non-Jewish community, and we want people to circulate it and get many others to sign on, to, to talk about the fact that 20 resolutions against Israel, three for the rest of the world, five in the, six in the United Nations, nothing against, in, in the Human Rights Council, nothing against Iran, Syria, Libya. The, in every agency, you just go down the list and you see all the discriminatory behavior uh, singling out uh, Israel. And the most blatant violations... Don't get mentioned. Never. And by the way, killing Christians doesn't get mentioned. Killing a Yazidi is hardly mentioned. You think the uh, anti-BDS conference at the end of the month in the UN is going to be effective? It, well, it's geared for students, I understand, and uh, I think all the efforts are important to, to counter BDS. We, we also have a conference coming up, uh, but ours is really to, to uh, highlight successful strategies, and there are. And we, we, there have been successes on many campuses, but this is also an issue in trade, trade unions and church groups and in, in, uh, business uh, communities and other organizations that uh, are taking up this, uh, you know, this uh, call for the BDS movement. Thank God it doesn't have much of an economic impact, but it does have a propagandistic I- impact. And it also has a pro- uh, an impact of intimidating young Jews on campuses from speaking up and, and standing up uh, uh, for Israel. So we should not dismiss um, what what its uh, significance is and what it really means. Based on media reports, looks like Shelley Adelson is going to be supporting uh, Donald Trump for president. Will there be plenty? Will there be plenty of representation of our community on both sides of this upcoming election? I guess eventually there will be. I think people are confused right now from what I hear. But again, I try not to focus on the presidential race and look at things where we can have a real impact. Right, but when it comes down to two people, it may be time to start focusing. People have to choose one, and they have to learn a lot more about one and to examine the record of the other and then, and then make a decision and think about who is going to lead in a, in a critical time. And, and again, as I say, Congress has always traditionally been the... Uh, the uh, bedrock of support for for us on Israel and other issues, and we should not lose sight of of many many races and in some cases already the retirement of of great friends and likely loss of of a uh, few others. Uh, these are very uh, serious matters, and uh, you know every one counts and every election counts, and that includes the local elections. We saw in New Jersey now just moving on BDS legislation as well. and that, That's when you have good local leadership. We see that the Arabs and the Muslim communities, as is their right, are electing people at the local level increasingly, including the mayor of London, but yeah. uh, also in other places. Um, and the, you know, they're, they're 
they're remembering about how important it is to have committee members and uh, uh, councilmen and everything else who, who move up the, the, the ladder. So we have to make sure that the people get elected are friends, are people who share the values, the concerns, the, the things uh, we want. Uh, you know, the, the Labor Party should be a wake-up call for all of us when you see already more than 50 people have been suspended, and, and more almost every day for, for blatant anti-Semitism. This is in Britain. You know the the you know that half of all the security forces in Britain and France are deployed internally hmm. to deal with the local threats. That statistic I think should be so shocking to people. And wow. a, a naval officer with tremendous amount of information about shipping routes and all sorts of stuff that, uh, from the British Navy as defected to go to ISIS. And the you know we, we have these stories every day. They get Almost no notice, almost no uh, uh, coverage, and you know we're going to pay a price for it. Speaking of London Mayor, the ex-Mayor uh, of London, Ken Livingstone, called the founding of the State of Israel a catastrophe. Well, he was a catastrophe, he is one, and he, <laughs> he was, uh, I think, clearly viewed as an anti-Semite by most, and you know, it's part of the poison that has infected the, the Labor Party, but I would suggest that it's others as well. They're at least addressing it, and uh, Corbyn has gotten rid of people, but some people say Corbyn's own leadership uh, raises questions. Um, but, you know, we don't know what uh, what is happening this year in the political process in America. It's so disruptive of all the past standards. Look at the, the reaction to sometimes, let's say, less than friendly statements about Israel, and the uh, uh, identification we're called sectionality of, of how the uh, Palestinian cause with Black Lives Matters and other things where they infiltrate demonstrations and the events of others and then try to create this common cause uh, uh, and manipulate the people who are involved in, in uh, otherwise important, sometimes important, and, and other times, uh, uh, you know, um, movements and, and significant statements. But they, you notice the, the even if, at, in um, the anti-police uh, demonstrations, you saw that the, all of a sudden there were signs, free Palestine. Yeah. Because they're taking advantage of everything and, and, and moving on it. And we, we better look at it. And the, the, there was a report the, that there's a decrease of violent attacks in America against Jews, but a rise in institutional anti-Semitism. Based on what you're saying, we have to take both very seriously. But you, you, you may not even believe that report, right? I don't not The anecdotal evidence I have in the things I see is that on campuses... It, the situation is very disturbing, but even in communities, when debates over real estate or you know uh, other issues that can be should would normally be dealt with in a civil way, and you see the kind of manifestations of anti-Semitism, I get complaints all the time from people about uh, both on an individual level or some community uh, issue that uh, that has arisen that it, it be, leads to much more blatant anti-Semitism than would have been true in the past, and, and open expressions of it. And, the, you know, the uh, we have to behave the right way. We have to do the right things, and we can't, uh, um, you know, sometimes we have to think about what we do also, but that's not what motivates people to these expressions of hate. Uh, we should also mention, by the way, on the U.N. list that you went through, and there was a lot there, uh, UNESCO adopted a resolution that ignored Jewish ties to the Temple Mount. So this is, you know that for two years I've talked about it on the show and warned when they had the meeting 
of Isesco in Amman, well, two more than two years ago, that this has been a process where they first started questioning the, the Jewish right, then they hyphenated, you know, Al-Burak's wall to, west, uh, to the Western Wall, and Kever uh, Rachel to the Mosque of, of Muhammad's driver. And now they voted in the Executive Council for 50-some countries to remove the Jewish, and, and in fact the Christian name, for all of these places completely. So the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, as it was called for years, the Kotel, is only known as Al-Burak's Wall. Al-Burak was Muhammad's horse who ascended after him and, and after he died, even though Muhammad never visited Israel in his lifetime. Um, and, and the mosque, uh, Kevar Rachel, for 3,000 years, known as Kutab Rachel, and every Arab and, and Muslim document, let alone international document, always referred to as such. And it's stripping the, the Jewish, uh, and, and I would say the Jewish Christian identity of all of these places. France voted for this resolution. Now the prime minister and the foreign minister came out in the last 48 hours saying the vote shouldn't have taken, took them a week, but instead the vote shouldn't have taken place. It huh. doesn't represent our view, and, you know, they repudiated it. But Russia and the other countries also voted for this thing. The United States obviously led the opposition to it, um, but it was a, a small number of countries that actually voted against it, and the overwhelming number voted for this resolution. Now, can they say they didn't know what it meant, that it, it, it was a mistake? This is an important statement now. France, because it wants to host, you know, the International Middle East Conference, maybe they thought this would ingratiate them with the Arabs, but it doesn't. It's not what the Arabs, most Arab leaders are not focused on this, and, and, and uh, you know, this is all stuff they do as a matter of course, but the, the Western countries join in, in a declaration that wipes out thousands of years of, of history, and, and all in an attempt to denude all the places of their Jewish content and of our right to these places. This is all part of BDS, and that's what's significant about it, that this is an attempt to remove the right of Jews to a state, the right of a Jewish state to exist, and the right of Jews to have a state. Great, analysis, great analysis. You've given this as an, uh, us this analysis uh, tens, if not hundreds of times over the years, and I wish people would just understand it and let it seep in. It's so important. Uh, way behind schedule, finally, um, uh, right before Pesach, uh, Joe Biden, Vice President of the United States at J Street Dinner, expressed, quote-unquote, overwhelming frustration with Israel, with Bibi Netanyahu. He's generally been viewed as a friend, and many in the community, uh, including Jewish leaders, uh, not just lay people, were shocked to see him take such an open stand against uh, the administration and Israel in this process. Uh, what, what was your reaction when you uh, heard about Biden's statement? I was surprised and very disappointed. Uh, Biden has a tendency to make off-the-cuff comments that are sometimes very extreme. He has a long history going back to his Senate days. Uh, he, he was and considers himself a friend of Israel, but his comments there... Uh, it, would, it would be necessary for us to find out whether this was a prepared text or just Biden being Biden. And he is given and has said it himself to, you know, making statements right. that, that later. And I, I, I have seen it many times, not just about Israel, where he will talk about something at a, an event when he's not doesn't have the cards and the notes in front of him or a prepared text and will just wander off into saying things that are quite outrageous. But his speech there and the fact that Kerry and Biden were there, both of them, uh, was a message from the administration, which has long supported uh, uh, J Street. And J Street, 
was one of those that they used, and I think um, you know the the articles reference, uh, and certainly it's a reference to the uh, how they used J Street to try and offer an alternative of support for the Iran deal when we were all opposing it. Yeah. Uh, welcome back. Thanks so much Thank for you. joining us. I have a lot more to talk about. I catch o- up over the coming week. I can only imagine. Have a wonderful shop. This will speak <laughs> again next week. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update, seven forty Eastern time here at JM in the AM.